All right, I think we'll start. You're welcome to keep looking and posting. There was an officer of the law, a recent graduate, proud as you can imagine, in his uniform, of dark navy, with gold epaulets, tall black boots, a hat with a wide plume. He carried a sword with a gold and ivory handle, and he was as pompous as could be. He was arrogant and bold and callous. In fact, every letter of the alphabet served only to demonstrate his authority, to exalt his importance. One day he was walking his beat, and he glanced down an alleyway. He had heard a commotion, and he ventured into the alleyway. And as he stepped in, he saw that there in the shadows was a man in rags. Come forward, he commanded. Come forward now. But the man in rags didn't come forward. I'm an officer of the law. I command you to come forward. The man in rags didn't move. He shifted his weight from one foot to the other, and then he spoke. I don't know what to do with you. The officer of the law said, do with me. You don't do with me. I do with you. I order you now, come forward. The man in rags shrugged and said, now I know what to do with you. And with that, as he turned, he drew his sword. The officer of the law had no choice but to draw his own, and the man in rags moved to attack. Stop that, he said. Put your sword down. I don't want to hurt you. But the man in rags kept moving forward, advancing, moving his blade this way and that. The officer of the law parried right and left, but he kept moving back, and the man in rags kept moving forward. But finally, the officer of the law, in what was meant to be a block, went straight into the body of the man in rags. It went straight through, and he looked down, and all of a sudden the officer of the law stepped back and said, I didn't mean to do that. I, I am so sorry. And the man in rags began to crumple to the ground. Why did you attack me? It didn't have to be this way. The man in rags waved away the man. No, I'm leaving you. There's nothing you can do. But as I leave you, I put upon you the curse of blessings. The curse of blessings. Every single day, you must say a new blessing, one that you've never said before. For on the day that you don't, you will die. The man in rags closed his eyes. The officer of the law looked around, searching for someone to help. And as he turned back, the man in rags was gone. It was a dream, the officer of the law thought. Just a dream, I imagined it. Time was late in the afternoon, and the sun was starting to go down. And the officer of the law, as much as he tried to ignore the experience, he could not. The sunset was coming, and he felt a cold that was seeping in from the tips of his fingers, the ends of his toes. He had a sense from the chill that his life was leaving him. 
And so in an instant, he said, blessed are you, God, who has created such a wonderful day. And all at once, warmth flowed back into his body. And he realized with both shock and relief that the curse was real. The next morning, he did not delay. He woke up. He offered a word of blessing. You are blessed because you've allowed me to wake up this morning. His life felt secure the entire day. The next morning, he blessed his ability to get out of bed. He blessed his ability to tie his shoes. He blessed his fingers, every one of them, so he got 10. He included his toes. He managed to bless every article of clothing. He blessed all the pieces of furniture in his house, his golf clubs, anything he could think of. He blessed his whole house, every piece of it. But he began to run out of things to bless. So he began to bless relationships. He blessed the people who were his closest friends, his family. He then had to branch out, and he had to bless acquaintances, people with whom he worked. He blessed the postman. He blessed the storekeeper. He was surprised to find that many, many people appreciated the blessings that he had to offer. And it drew people closer to him. Word began to go out that the officer of the law was a source of blessing. Years passed. Decades passed. He, of course, had to go far afield. He had to find new sources of blessing. And so he would travel, and he would bless city councils and universities. He would bless scientists, the things they discovered. And as he traveled throughout the world, he became more in awe of its beauty and its balance. He saw so much that was worth blessing. The more he had to learn, the more he had to bless, his life was long. He passed the age of 100. Most of his friends were gone, and his time was now relegated for trying to find the purpose of life, the one source from which all blessings probably flow. He had long since understood that he was not the source of blessing. He was simply the conduit through which they flowed. Even that realization was welcomed with a blessing that gave him another day. He approached the age of 120. Even Moses didn't live beyond that, and so he said, this is a life that is long enough. And so he decided that his 120th birthday would be his last day. And he made a conscious decision to utter no new blessing. He could still review all of the blessings that he had made in his life, and so he did. And that brought him incredible joy. He was amazed at the pulse of purpose that seemed to pervade his whole life, and he celebrated that, but still no new blessing crossed his lips. The sun began to set, and he felt a chill that he hadn't felt for so long, creeping into his limbs, and he did not resist it. And then, as twilight came on, he saw the shadow of a man. It was the man in rags. I have thought about you every single day 
for a hundred years. I never meant to hurt you. Please, forgive me, he said. You don't understand, do you, said the men in rags. You don't know who I am. I'm the angel who was sent a hundred years ago to harvest your soul, but when I looked at you, so pompous and arrogant, there was nothing to bless, nothing to look at with favor. It was emptiness. I couldn't take a thing because it was an empty uniform that I saw. So I put upon you the curse of blessings and, well, look what you have become. The officer of the law grasped in an instant all that had happened. And he was overwhelmed. He said, blessed are you, Lord, who has given me life and brought me to this moment. In that instant, warmth began to flow back into his body. Ah, now look what you've done, said the man in rags, a new blessing. <laughs> they looked at each other, neither knowing quite what to do. I wanted to start with that story by Mitchell Heifetz. But now I want to ask you, why do you think I chose to start with that story? Stories are woven from so many threads. I just want you to tug at the threads and see what comes out. I'm not asking you to be the major literary analyst, but if this is a class on praying without a book. Yes? Well, it's a story about praying that doesn't involve going to synagogue. It has to do with one person's emotional and religious development. There's a process that he goes through, for sure. I started out saying that it has to do with somebody who doesn't go to synagogue, but it's certainly a very Jewish approach to the process where you have to involve yourself by saying brachot. I don't know if he did or didn't go to synagogue. <laughs> I mean, with Ken and Rabbi Witkowski here, I'm sure he did, and he got a lot of meaning out of it as all of you do. No, but this is going to be that class where it is about what happens when you're there without a book. So officially, I want to welcome you. I am Chaim Galfand. And welcome if you love the synagogue. Welcome if the synagogue is a place that presents its challenges to you. 
Welcome if you love prayer. Welcome if prayer is the bane of your existence. Welcome if you can soar through the Hebrew of the Sidur, the prayer book. And welcome if you can't identify a Hebrew character. This is for all of us. And we find ourselves in so many different places, not at points in our life, but over the course even of a single week, what prayer can mean. I did want to start with the idea that praying without a book means the books that are sort of over there on the shelves. The book is without the sidur, the prayer book. And the prayer book comes with a lot of potential problems. The problems could be with the simple language that is presented, the images that might be from ancient times, the images of God that you might not share. It might be that the Hebrew is familiar, but you find that the pace at which it goes is something that you can't keep up with. Maybe sometimes your eyes slide over to the other side of the page. And what you read there leaves you thinking, I really wish I hadn't even read that. We read statements about God that maybe we find unbelievable. And then what are we supposed to do with that? We find ourselves lingering on that page. Maybe we've been instructed to turn to another page, but we're still stuck on that last one. And then we start feeling foolish about continuing on because why are we doing something if we don't get a chance to resolve the problems that we're feeling? I decided to teach this, maybe I'll say facilitate this, selfishly, for my own purposes. So I've explained to one or two of you that I decided to pick something that is not my strength necessarily because I wanted to practice, I wanted to learn myself. So I'm going to start with a quote from a book called Courage to Teach by Parker Palmer, who's you know, going strong into his 80s, an educator and an author who focuses on everything from leadership to spirituality. And he starts by saying that the complexities of teaching are really more than just sort of keeping up in your field and learning some new techniques, trying to stay ahead of the students. But he said, there's one complexity that always has to be acknowledged, which is we teach who we are. He says, teaching, like any truly human activity, emerges from one's inwardness, for better or worse. As I teach, I project the condition of my soul onto my students, onto my subject, and our way of being together. The entanglements I experience in the classroom are often no more or less than the convolutions of my inner life. Viewed from this angle, teaching holds a mirror to the soul. If I am willing to look in that mirror and not run from what I see, I have a chance to gain self-knowledge. And knowing myself is as crucial to good teaching as knowing my students and my subject. So I am going to share. And I know that I'm going to project what I've experienced at points in my life onto our conversation and it will have its vulnerable moments, at least for me. <clears throat> I've been thinking this would be a 
pretty easy one to facilitate if I was going to a place where I didn't know a soul. But I know many of you. Some of you know me for a long time and know me in different capacities. So maybe I have to bring you a little bit along my journey and to the why I wanted to get to the point where I could move away from the Siddur, the prayer book, and into that realm of unscripted. I was raised in the Philadelphia area. I was a member of a conservative synagogue in Center City, that's I Beth Israel. I went to Perlman Jewish Day School, where I now work. My Hebrew was good. I could read. And we did prayer at the school. We would have our chance to open up the books. I don't recall, way back in the 70s, I don't recall talking about God. I don't necessarily recall talking about what the words meant, but we knew how to do it. And we knew how to take it with a serious attitude. I grew up. I didn't become a rabbi, but I became a lawyer. And my religious life, my prayer life, was kind of on hiatus. And something began to bring me back. It was working with young professionals in the Philadelphia area, studying some basic core elements of Jewish life. And I realized, oh, I'm kind of drawing on some back knowledge, some memories. And it was satisfying. And the more I did, the more I was led to do. And the more I thought, this is really satisfying. I wonder if maybe I should go into something like education. And the death of my father prompted me to decide not for a master's degree, but for rabbinical training. And so started a long six-year process. As I went through that process, I discovered a community of people who, kind of like me, sort of knew their way around the prayer book. I discovered some people who, for whom it was really very foreign. I discovered some people who could absolutely fly through it. I'm thinking, what are you in rabbinical school for? You could just step up and go ahead and do this stuff. And through my years of training and my first 10, even longer, maybe 15 years of being a rabbi, I was very much focused on in the box and between the covers of the Siddur, looking at those words and following them. But as I look along that journey, I think back specifically to something that felt like maybe it was, I didn't even know it was missing, but I felt like I was always turning my attention to, have I checked the box? This is done at this time. This is done in this way. Am I doing it in the correct fashion? Am I matching up with what the group is doing? Am I speaking clearly enough for everybody as we do this? And then I had a chance in 2017 to go to St. Louis, Missouri for something called the Song Leader Boot Camp. Anybody know it? So the Song Leader Boot Camp has been going strong now for well over probably 15 years. It is what you would imagine, several days of song leading, but it is a boot camp. It brings together thinkers and philosophers and theologians and just folks who are involved in 
the rabbinate, in the cantorate, in song leading at camps, all sorts of things. And the sessions are all over the board, all over the place. And the first day that I went, it started with prayer in a black box theater. Now I had a heads up from a good friend who said, listen, I've been going to tell you one word of advice. Check your judgment at the door. Just go in with that proverbial open mind. And I did. I really, really did. And as I entered that prayer space, as I saw a room where the center was a circle of nearly 15 chairs with a bunch of chords, amplification, all sorts of musicians, singers, and going up the sides of this black box theater, people, some of whom were dressed in talit and fill-in, the ritual garb, others just in a t-shirt and jeans. And then the prayer started. Much of it was familiar. Some people had books, but many didn't. And it was beyond spirited. It was beyond joyful. It was the first time that I could recall in my life that I was experiencing something that I felt was worship. A word that can come with overtones, I understand that. But for me, there was something that was soaring in that moment. And I watched people who were head in their hands with a look of concentration, other people who were standing and roaming and twirling and moving, people with their arms up, people with their arms around, everybody in their own space. It was communal. It wasn't private, personal prayer for sure. But it unlocked something in me, and it made me realize I need to get onto an additional path. Not a different one, but an additional path. And I came away from my days there and my sessions there with a whole different sense of God. It went from, to me, the God of the prayer book, to something that was deeper, something that was a personal God. Not exclusively, but a dimension that I'd never tapped into before. And I decided I wanted a personal relationship with that personal God. Doesn't sound particularly Jewish. But it is. It's in the tradition. It is in the tradition. But for me, that 2017 experience was what had really changed me. I know I wanted something more in this direct relationship with God, and I certainly do not mean to disparage synagogues. But I knew that I couldn't leave my future in the hands of even the best clergy. I had to take my relationship into my own hands. I had to be the one to shape it. No one else could really pray for me. I couldn't leave what was the expression that I felt in my heart in somebody else's hands, or even in the book. And I know that many will probably understand what if I give you this analogy, that if I go to a service and I'm expecting something to move me, 
It might be somebody else's words. It might be that prayer in the book that is somebody else's words that have been written. It might be the musicianship that I hear. In a way, I'm kind of like an observer. I am part of the process, but I'm an observer, and I might even be a little bit like a critic. And I might be able to say, something here really kind of touches me. I might be spiritually enriched, but I might not be. And if I'm not, I might be able to blame it on, I think like a film critic, on the film, on something that's happening out there. But if I take a different tact, and I treat it not like the person observing something, like the person who's going to the film so that they can write their review, but if I treat it like the artist who's in that process of preparing, and they're stretching out their canvas, and they're getting ready to paint, I'm responsible for the inspiration, I'm responsible for the execution, and my project, in this case maybe my prayer, may not turn out perfect or beautiful, but it's not likely to be a failure because, as we spoke of Officer of the Law in the story, it would be part of a process. And hopefully, even the failures in it would be a part of growth. So ultimately, I think we have to become not consumers of a synagogue product, but we have to become prayer people. And that means relying on the community, but shaping a lot of it ourselves. It may sound daunting, but I suspect that's why many of you are here tonight. Um, better musicians, better sermons, they elevate things, it's true. But the deep and lasting change only comes when we've done that hard work. I want to offer a, an image that I think you've seen on televisions. There's one of the quotes from Rabbi Artson on the wall that sort of alludes to it. But imagine a wonderful gathering of clergy, ecumenical, interfaith, taking a trip. And of course, as you set out, you want to say, well, let's start our trip off with a, with a blessing. Let's get ourselves off on the right foot. I had a very similar experience this you know, recently, heading down to Washington. I was on a bus. There was a chance to offer a prayer at the start. But now imagine it's not the Jewish bus, it's a mixed bus. Maybe one of the people there, maybe a pastor, comes up, stands at the front of the bus, offers that prayer. Dear Lord, we set off on this trip in fellowship. Our hearts are open. Our minds are willing to hear different points of view. Dear God, give us the strength to listen. Give us the capacity to understand. Help us reach our goal closer together and enriched by the experience. Amen. And people say amen. The rabbi gets to go up. Trying to find the tefillah Derek, the prayer of the, the journey, right? When you find it, and you read the prayer, and it's, it's a lovely prayer. It really has some beautiful images in it but it really doesn't quite come off the same way as the unscripted one. The one that might feel very not Jewish. I personally did not grow up with an experience 
of spontaneous, unscripted, extemporaneous prayer. And I'm not looking for the vulnerability to go beyond me out to you. I'm not going to ask with a show of hands. But I'm sure that others here have had that experience through their growing up more than I. You might have had it in a family setting. You might have had it in a sports setting. But there's something about that example where it just doesn't feel like it meant as much when it had to get read from the book. And I think that's where we're trying to take this, as if to say, we are going to be in places where we use the liturgy, but that's putting the cart in front of the horse. And you can't go in that direction. We struggle sometimes with the idea that we want to have a prayerful experience that doesn't arise out of the book, one that we can maybe do on our own. But I think they call us people of the book for more than one reason. It's not just because of the Torah. I think it's because we often like to know what page we're on, what prayer we're saying, what those words are. We like it to have been through us a couple times so that we can really sort of feel comfortable. And that allows us to check the box. With the Siddur, the prayer book comes with the problems that the words never change. And sometimes you're not feeling how those words on the page are presenting. And you might say, that's, that's fine, because prayer is very much about the community. I was having a conversation with my mother-in-law. And she said, I mean, honestly, I, when I go to the synagogue, I'm there for the community. I'm not there for the people in the book. I'm there because I just want to be with everybody. We all have many, many different reasons. But for me, selfishly, I wanted to talk through some of this with you as to how do we cultivate the actions of speaking spontaneously and tapping into what we're feeling on the inside. I mean, listen, if you think about it, nine times out of 10, somebody else's words aren't going to really capture how you're feeling. It might come close. And I know you've all bought the Hallmark card, and sometimes you say, that really is exactly how I feel. But of course, if you wrote the card by hand, it might be received in an incredibly different way and seen as much more tailored and much more personal. But I said it's nine times out of 10. Sometimes the Hallmark card is really <laughs> extraordinary. But heartfelt prayer is not simple, partly because it involves cultivating a frame of mind that you can't always call up in the instant. You can't say, tomorrow at 7.30 AM, I am going to be moved by the victims of that fire, and I'm going to have them in my prayers. It's a nice wish, but it may not work out that way. But instead, often what we have to do is we have to start putting into place certain things that allow us to develop habits. And we all know that habits are the sorts of things that are built by repetition. And sometimes the things that we do more often, the things that we start to get better at, they're the things that we like to do because they give us a sense of confidence and a sense of competence. And the things that we struggle with, sometimes we want to kind of steer a little clear. We don't want to be reminded of our failings. So as to the how, 
you do get a takeaway from this. So I will hand out something to you. And Rabbi Nachman of Bratislav, with the end of the 1700s, into the 1800s, he had a practice of heat bodhidut. I'm not going to call it meditation. Some may call it that. Rabbi Nachman, who's the great-grandson of the Baal Shem Tov, founder of Hasidism, started his own take on Hasidut in the town of Breslov, where he sort of used a bit of mysticism with a little bit of Torah writings to come up with his unique take. And this term, Hitbodidut, has to do a little bit with aloneness for a spiritual purpose. So maybe calling it alone time for spiritual work, alone time for spiritual cultivation or development. Now the version that he has, he often tried it outside. Now there's a problem. I am going to talk about it tonight, but we're not going to do it tonight because it takes time and it takes privacy. And it's not the sort of thing that you want to do in a crowd. You would often find a beautiful outdoor setting. Many of the Hasidim felt more attuned to their spirituality when they were away from the places where the books that they studied were and when they really could be in the wide world, in God's world, and really sensing what was around them. So for him, he would say, find a place that was quiet, a place that was alone for you. And he suggested that you talk to God out loud for a while. He would talk for about an hour to God out loud. Now, the exercise that's based on Rabbi Nachman's approach is give this a try yourself. Find a quiet spot alone and just start talking. Give yourself a time limit. 20 minutes and talk. Now, as you might imagine, it sounds good, but of course, imagine a little deeper. And imagine what you're going to say after two minutes or three and a half minutes. 20 minutes is an eternity, let alone an hour. But you don't stop. And I mean, you don't stop talking, you don't take a break. There's no silence at all. You just keep talking. Now, of course, you probably, what's the problem with talking? You run out of stuff. You don't know what you're going to say. Even Rabbi Nachman would run out of stuff to say. And so what he would do is, in those times, he would be talking to God, and he just would keep talking. And when he ran out of things, he would just say, Sovereign of the universe, in his language, Ribono Shalolam. Ribono Shalolam, Ribono Shalolam, Ribono Shalolam, Ribono Shalolam. He didn't stop the moving of his lips. He kept talking until the next thought occurred to him. And it's not necessarily making things up, but it is driving you towards this inward place where you are you are assessing yourself. You're starting to figure things out. I often find my most creative moments, I don't think of myself as exceptionally creative. 
I've got, I'm surrounded by creative people in my family. My greatest creativity comes out in my dreams. I don't remember them very often. When I do, I am often just, I can't believe I came up with something that, that intricate and that detailed. I, I mean, I, I don't think I had that in me. This is designed as a barrier breaker. This talking for a 20 minute stretch without a break, you find that you're just starting to reach within yourself and you might have a feeling and you might be probing at what that feeling is and knowing that no one's listening to you, not even the people who you would trust more than anyone. Right? You would think, well, if I've got a sibling, if I've got my best friend, if I've got a partner, I mean, that would be easy. I mean, I could be talking with that person. You can say things when you are alone that you would never say if somebody was there, either because you would feel embarrassed or maybe you would feel awkward or you'd be afraid you're just taking too much of their time or they're going to judge you. But as you keep talking, you start realizing, I'm onto something here. And if you're not onto something, then maybe you veer a little bit inside. These are going to be emotions. They're going to be wonderings. And over the course of 20 minutes, you're not really stopping to think. If you have to keep talking, you just it's just a stream of consciousness. And yes, you fill with the words when you're not quite sure of what's coming next, but things start to happen. I know that there are some that would say you can do this with a journal, and it's true. So some people will suggest a journaling exercise. And this actually goes back to, um, goes back 30 years now to, uh, to The Artist's Way, if you remember that book. And The Artist's Way was very much about trying to establish a creative process by breaking down the barriers so that you could feel this sense of flow. But a lot of people didn't do the book the way you were supposed to do the book. A lot of people bought the book and got through chapter two, and it's on some shelf somewhere. Because it is a daily practice. And it's a daily practice where you open up the book and you say, each morning, I'm going to write. I'm going to write three eight and a half by 11 lined pages, and you don't stop writing. The pen or pencil doesn't leave the page. You just keep writing. And similar to Rabbi Nachman of Braslav, you don't, you don't have to write Ribono Shalolam, Sovereign of the Universe, but you might say, I don't know what to say, not sure what to say, now a thought's occurring to me, and you just keep writing every day. And it instills this discipline, for sure, but it also provides this escape the room kind of mentality. You are unlocking a lot of different things. And for me, I've started to found that it doesn't unlock my dreams, but for me, there's no question that I have spent a lot of my life living from the shoulders up. Those who know me probably know this about me. I don't get here as often as I should. Think a bit too much. I'm quiet. Not with your mic. So I don't admit what's in my heart so often. But when I do this, I get there. No one's able to stop me.
and self-consciousness is gone. And depending how you want to take Rabbi Nachman at his instruction, talk to God, I don't know what that's going to mean to you. I certainly couldn't be talking to my 13-year-old self's God. That's a very different sort of a God. And I know this is not a session on theology, but you sort of can't ignore the theology when you are talking about some kind of prayer. I get that. But there's so many different concepts and ways of thinking about God, for sure. So if I can even offer just a couple of points on that. This is not so much asking God for something. This is starting a practice of just talking to God. I don't know where God is for you. You could be the pantheist who says, God is in everything, so I can find God there. You could be the monotheist who says, God's not in everything necessarily, but God's, and, and I'm here. There's this duality. Or you could be a monist, where you say, no, it's not that God is there. It's not that there's one God. There simply is one. As in, there is only one thing in the world. It's not that God is in everything. Everything is God. Not to say God is in you, but not to say that you are God, but everything is one. Might be more of an Eastern concept. But even the things that we see. Put a hand or, yeah. No, no, please, it's fine. Um, in Rabbi Nachman's exercise, what is the purpose and what's the intention of the person that goes into it? The intention is to start to get to know yourself better. That seems very egocentric. So the question then becomes, what does our prayer life mean to achieve? And discourse generally tends to have that when we pray, we're asking for things or we're hoping to have God do things. I'm not going to say that there aren't lots of, of religions that have that as their intent. But if we're to look back 2,000 years, the bulk of Jewish philosophy, theology, rabbinic writing does not see God, despite what you are seeing in the High Holiday Machsor prayer book, or your weekday Sidur, or your Shabbat Sidur, despite the language, the writers through the last 2,000 years do not see God as you ask, God gives. There are a variety of different perspectives on it. Some of it is, as you think deeply about the aspects of your life that you might want to be in touch with, that you might want some help trying to change, that it actually has a complementary effect on the world. Now, some are going to do that in a Kabbalistic sense, and it's going to actually move its way out into the world. Others are very practical and say, as you cultivate this inner life and thinking about who you are, that it's going to shape some of your actions, it's going to shape your interactions, and that's going to transform the world. So it's not meant to be as narcissistic as it could sound. But imagine if you go through life with all of the fragility that we have, the woundedness that we have, the anxiety that we have, and you don't have anyone to pass that to. You know, if you were going to sit there and say, well, I'm just going to be honest like this. I'm going, to, I'm going to take all of the things that I'm feeling, all of my deepest disappointments and my fears, and I'm just going to 
I'm just going to spring it all on my friend. Your friend may not want to hang out with you that much. And one part of this is that we are looking through prayer to, I think, become something, to become healthier, better, better in the world, better for others. Yeah, no, no, it's fine. Notion of prayer as as kind of self reflection, self improvement. It sounds a lot like Freudian psychotherapy. I mean, what's the, what's the significance of talking to God rather than talking to another person? Is that other person necessarily going to be the one to help you? It might. Are you going to tell that other person the things that you would be able to tell to God? I don't know. Even to the therapist with whom we've worked for a long time, we might still hold certain things back. But I think part of this is, if you can develop this practice, and I have been couching it in terms of some of these, this inner dialogue, but you also might be trying to come to grips with what you see in the world. And maybe you can start to make sense of that, or find a way that you can accept some of it, or maybe be prodded into a posture where you say, I am going to actively do something. And you might say, well, that's kind of convincing yourself. That line between who are you talking to and is it God? I mean, I, I try to tell some of my students, and they are a lot shorter than all of you. Those stickers that say, hello, my name is. Right? I like to imagine that you got the hello, my name is God sticker. But you got a stack of them. And you get to put it on whatever you want. You're not going to run out of stickers. So when you see somebody helping somebody, you might slap a sticker and say, that's God. Or when you see somebody who is struggling to overcome perhaps an addiction, you might say, that's the barrier that is placed in front of that person so that they can achieve their success in climbing over it. Maybe that's God. I'm not saying I subscribe to all these. It could be that the person who is able to express their joy when before they felt clouded by doom and gloom, maybe that's that moment of God. Maybe the sense of overcoming obstacles People say, that's resilience. What if you say, resilience? Where do you think you got that? Yeah. So it is. A lot of it is captured in his writings and especially in his stories, but it's not, it doesn't go to the depth of, um, of what some of those specific emotions were. I think that might be between God and him. But he talks, at least in some, to some extent, about the sorts of, of breakthroughs that you can achieve at knowing yourself and your place in the world better.
I can imagine that something like this, if you start to develop a practice with it, if you think of people like musicians and dancers and writers getting up every day to write the certain number of pages that they're going to write, the more that you do this, I think it's not just going to change you, it's probably going to change the people around you because you're going to understand things in a different way. You're going to realize maybe the priorities in your life are, need to be different. Um, I think your sense of God might change. It sounds to me like a lot of what you're describing is just being conscious and concentrating on what's going on in your life. Is it not possible that when you use the prayer book, and I realize you started out to move away from just reading prayers, but the more you're prepared to actually interact with the prayers, and the more times you concentrate on it, that you'll be doing the same thing that Rabbi Nachman is doing out in the forest. To me, it's the chicken and the egg. Very few of the people that I hang out with, and you might say, well, you're hanging out with the wrong people, <laughs> grew up with a rich personal prayer life. Many of us were raised where our prayer life centered on the Siddur. But I think that that's the wrong order. I think you have to learn how to pray before you can learn how to pray. And I think it has to be the personal prayer before you get to somebody else's words. And certainly within session two and absolutely session three are going to take us back to the words on the page and how that can actually be a springboard back into the emotions that we've started to identify. And it's not meant to be an either or. It's certainly a both and. If we try to think of this as a, you know, what are Jews supposed to do? You're supposed to pray three times a day. We have three prayer services. Doesn't mean you're limited to those three times. What about if somebody prays five times a day, but none of them are from the book? And what if some of them are super short? to be long. And even I'm a little nervous to sort of model a spontaneous prayer. But I've had a lot of prayerful moments leading up to this. You know what the number one phobia is for most people, right? Public speaking. Yeah. So public speaking, and now if you say, well, we want you to have a nice rich prayer life, and let's have somebody offer a prayer tonight. You know, would you like to lead us in a prayer? Uh, okay, except now you're going to be thinking, did I express it fully? Did I choose the right words? Did it really lift people up? My gosh, the bar is so high. But imagine if you're going to start it with yourself, and you're going to start to get used to the language and how to call that into place more quickly. You can almost sort of summon it. I do have a daughter who... She likes like uh, affirmations. She likes manifesting things. And at first, I definitely, I will admit, I kind of thought, well, wouldn't it be nice if you could sort of have something from our tradition? But to manifest, whether it's going to be that new job, whether it's going to be that personal achievement. And then I started finding that 
manifestation, well, that's something that Rabbi Nachman did too. It's actually got its Jewish roots. And some would say that the real idea behind it is that you are seeking for that help, not for something that you can't get. That really the manifesting part of it is for something that you have within you, for which you are capable. And you're just needing a little bit of help to get there. I certainly don't want to jettison the prayer book. Because there are times where even being familiar with spontaneous prayer, you might say, yeah, I'm this is just not a moment for it though right now. I just kind of need to be with everyone in that moment. When you talk about the idea of get through those prayers, there's a book by Rabbi Lawrence Kushner, and it's an Aleph to Tav, an A to Z book, but in the Hebrew alphabet. Aleph to Tav. And when I got to Tav, the word was Tithilah. But what he did for each entry of each letter of the alphabet was he would provide its translation, and then he would give his translation. So it had the letter Tav, it spelled out the word Tefillah, and then it said prayer, and then it said script. And I'm thinking, this isn't going to be pretty. He's going to slam the idea. And he said, opening up a book, going through it on a repeated basis, it reaches the point where you are reading a script, and it becomes rote. And I'm thinking, here it comes. And he said, and that is fantastic. Hey, what? This is Rabbi Lawrence Kushner? He's a real thinker, and he cares deeply about things, and he should slam anything that's rote. But what he said was, if it becomes so familiar to you, you can get your mind out of the page. We overthink so much, and our eyes catch on the words. I sometimes think that the Sidur has got to be a heck of a lot harder for Israelis, because they know what they're saying. They don't have to look at the translation. And they're going, oh, oh, oh. And it comes with modern connotations of that phrase or of that, that root letter, root, root part of the word. But sometimes it's good to just go through that flow and rise above it, as he said, to allow your mind to start to think, what are those aspects of your life that you could use some guidance with on which you'd like clarity? What are those things that you truly are so happy with that you know an expression of joy is essential from you at this point. So the pages are flying by and he's, he's saying that's a good thing because it gets you in touch with those feelings. But again, I do think you have to have the capacity to identify what some of them are. And I'm sure some of you are very, very well self-actualized, far more than me. But for me, this worked as a process. I'm left with a problem, though. I do like spontaneous prayer. But with whom can I do it? Because as soon as I start something like that, right? You know, if I were to be on a lovely walk with Rabbi Witkowski, and I would say, you know what, it was great. It was that, that ball game the other day. And it was really just making me think about um, you know, how people are able to achieve things. You know what, let, I just want to offer a prayer here. He's going to smile, he's going to think, okay. He's off in woo-woo land, that's just strange. 
because it's not this Jewish practice we're used to. I mean, sure, you saw enough of it in the locker room on Friday night lights. If you know, you know. But to do it, it feels like it's not authentic. And that's one of those scary buzzwords, right? People are going to point the fingers as, that's authentic, that's not authentic. And who's to say? But the question is, what does it do for you? And if I'm going to be in that community where I can offer a prayer that's not found in a book, that really is not going to be so completely well-formed and is going to be capturing the feeling that maybe a group has, I'm still kind of searching for that beyond the short people that I work with. Because I will tell you, and we'll finish with it tonight, about my spontaneous prayer with first graders. But first. I'm sure there are both, right? Because there are, there are people who choose Jewish meditation that is silent, right? What makes it Jewish? Because it is a part of our tradition. It is in there. I guess if you're Jewish and you're doing it, it's automatically Jewish meditation, maybe. But, <laughs> but words are so important to who we are and our tradition. And because I know that I am going to bring us back to the book. So our first graders, where I work, are about to get their first siddur, their first prayer book. It's one that we make at the school. And it's got quite a lot of prayers in it. It'll kind of shock you. But before they really start working with these pages, we talk. And we'll sit there together. My creaky knees still, can still get me to the floor. <laughs> and I'll say, how you doing today? What's on your mind? How are you feeling? Are there any amazing things that are going on with you right now? Any things that you've been thinking about? Anything that you're worried about? It's amazing what kids will share. I just got this new something, and it came from my grandma. How do you feel about that? It just made me feel really special. Why did it make you feel really special? Well, because she traveled and gave it to me. Does she live far? I mean, she has to drive a long way to get to me. And then I turn it into a prayer. I spin it back to that first grader. And I'll say it's perfectly appropriate to feel that sense of love flowing into you when you see your grandma drive up in that car. She comes out. She could have gone anywhere else that day, but she came to you and you feel that joy, and you want to hold that joy, you want to lift it up, you want to see it and hold it and appreciate it, and offer it back to your grandmother. And so today you are thankful, and you are joyful. All I've done is really just sort of take the words that were spoken, and I offer it back. But for me, it's also now one step closer. So for those that 
come to the synagogue, not just for a class, but they sort of end up here on a Zoom minion or in a live minion. And maybe you're listening to the words from the morning service. All of those blessings are in this first grader's sidur. And they don't know what the Hebrew means. But I might say, you know, they're in here, aren't they? There we go. All right. So it might be if one of them says, I had this incredible discovery. And I just found out something. And I'll say, you know, we grown-ups, we, we sometimes say, I never knew that before. It's like my eyes are wide open now. I didn't really know about that before. But now I know. That was an eye-opening experience. And some kids will say, even in first grade, oh, I know that. I've heard of people say that. I said, it's kind of like the light bulb went off. It's amazing. Some, some of them might say, I've seen a cartoon like that, a person with a light bulb above their head. <laughs> yeah, it's because it was dark and they couldn't see. And all of a sudden, it's like the light switch went on. Like, oh, now I see. I said, you know, there's a blessing in here called Pokeach Ivrim. It's about awareness, not Poteach Ivrim, which would be sort of opening the eyes of the blind, but becoming aware. And I'll say, let's work with that. When's the last time you had an eye-opening experience? When's the last time you had a discovery where you said, this is just amazing, and I didn't know? First graders, they'll tell you. But now, instead of telling it like I did last time, when I was doing that experiment with my brother, who's older than me, and he showed me that when you connect these two wires, you can make that bulb light up. And I had no idea about something called a circuit. But now I understand it, and I'm really amazed. So now he knows that we've just done something that's in his book, and that these words have existed for a super long time, but they're his words now. And he's been honored in that moment by the, valuation of his, by the valuing of his feelings and of his experiences. So it is a spontaneous prayer, right? Except it isn't, because now I'm tying it back to something in the book. But it was spontaneous, because it was built on that moment and that sharing that just happened. So I haven't really figured out where. We're at the 9 o'clock time, but I'm going to leave it with you to maybe next time, those of you who come. I'm trying to figure out where Mad Libs fit in. <laughs> mad Libs, remember the old, you know, such and such, such and such blank verb, adjective. That's scripted and unscripted. But it's a little bit random because you don't know. What would be the Mad Libs equivalent for us now? Part of me thinks that it's a Misha Beirach. Because you got your script but you're filling it in with the name that you say, maybe the two names that you say, or the name that you can't even bring yourself to say because you're so choked up with the pain about it, but it's front and center for you. So trying to identify what that path is to take the, how do I take the feelings that I'm discussing with myself and with my sense of God, how do I bring that back into here? That's where we have to get to. So we are going to do next time a little bit more work with the spontaneous unscripted, but it's really going to connect starting to back into the fixed part of our liturgy. Yes?
I'm grateful that you shared it, and it could be that your personal experience gave you that sense of what you needed at that moment, and you reached out to somebody for whom the script was important, and the script meant something to you. But in a way, you're a bridge between those two things, maybe. I'm glad you shared it. Thank you all for coming. There's more to come, 14th and the 21st of the month. Feel free to join us. <laughs>